Welcome to the Life Science and Marketing Podcast, where we discuss marketing and career insights and tips with leading experts from across the globe. Let's join our host, Paul Avery, CEO of Biostrata, as he chats with our next Life Science Marketing guest. Hi, everyone. Today, I am joined by Claudina Johnson. Claudina has a strong science background with a degree in genetics from the University of Nottingham and an MRes in biomedicine from UCL. She's held a number of interesting marketing positions in the life sciences, working at companies like Expedience, Fear Fluidics, Camerus. And these days, she plies her trade as marketing director at Source Bioscience. Claudina, thanks for joining me today. Hi, Paul. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Oh, we're really glad you could be here. Why don't you um why don't we kick off by you just sharing with the listeners your story? How how did you get to where you are today? Thanks, Paul. Yeah, I, I'd love to. It's uh not something I really get to talk about um very often. So I think a, a logical place to start where where it all really began for me was um back to 15-year-old me sitting in my science classroom in high school and to this day, I don't really know if my science teacher was just a little bit tired or um, not sure, but he he popped on a BBC documentary about the Human Genome Project for us. Um, and I, I knew nothing about it at that point. I didn't know what to expect, but we started watching. And I just, you know, that documentary really sparked it for me. I had no idea that this entire world out there existed um, and what we were able to to see through sequencing and how quickly technology was moving. So again, that was just like a basic introduction. But from that point forward, you know, it really stayed with me. Um, and then fast forward to young adult me. Um, again, I, I went and did my um, my academic studies, uh, like you, you know, very correctly said, in, in genetics and biomedicine. And I found the area fascinating, but I always knew that my actual strengths as a person uh, we're not strictly speaking, like classically academic. Um, and I was, I was always interested in the commercial world, um, organization, private organizations, how they worked. And I couldn't really figure out a way how to combine the two. Um, so through a combination of, I think how it often goes, a little bit of ambition, a little bit of personal research, um, and a little bit of blind luck, if I'm being completely honest. <laughs> um, and um, effectively, fresh out of my studies, I, I moved to Cambridge, as we all know, is is a bit of a life science hub, innovation hub, especially these days. But even then, so we're we're back in like 2010 now. Um, it was it was starting to explode, I'd say. Um, and I got my very first role as a uh, a marketing coordinator. Uh, one of the startups on the Babraham Research Campus just outside of Cambridge. Um, and then it really goes from there, to be honest. I was, again, so a little bit of, bit more luck came my way. And um, I I was lucky enough to meet some really talented people that helped guide me, um, some really excellent mentors that I'm in, I'm in contact with to this very day. Um, and I just, I never stopped learning. Um, I must also mention there was an element of all the companies I've worked with were not necessarily complete startups, but I'd say they were maybe scale ups. So um, there was, 
you know, there was plenty to do, uh, but I also had to wear many hats in, in all of my roles. So as much as I've always been marketing, uh, there have always been elements of sales and business development, a little bit of uh, public affairs. Uh, with my time in more classic pharma, there was a regulatory element. Um, so it's it's been a a constant learning journey for me um, of combining marketing and related commercial skills and scientific innovation that have led me to this very point. Amazing. You mentioned um, working in scale-ups which I think is a fascinating segment of the market to find yourself in. So was there anything particularly inspiring or particularly challenging that you experienced or you learned while you were working in the scale-up environment? Yeah, I think I think there are a number of challenges, but at the same time, you know, as it often is, they're, they're your opportunities really where there's enough of a structure, like I said, where it's not a complete blank page, you know, not a complete startup environment. And you've got You've got your commercial goals. You've got the like the raison d'être for the actual organization and um, their IP and their area of expertise. But usually, there aren't very many um, internal processes or SOPs, or or there may be in the lab, but not so much on the commercial side. Um, so. I'm used to it now, and in fact, I've come to appreciate it, and I, I quite love it actually. Um, but, you know, it can be a bit of a challenge, especially earlier on in your career when you step into such an environment and you find yourself with usually fairly ambitious goals to reach, whatever that may be, whether it's, you know, awareness raising, whether it's direct lead generation for the sales pipeline or anything in between, um, to know where to begin and all the steps in between to, to actually successfully um, go where you where you need to go. So... There is a whole operational element probably in, in the scale-up environment that comes into play with marketing. You know, it's it's you can't really go straight into with wonderful marketing tools that we have available to us in this day and age, such such as you know, CRMs along the lines of HubSpot to give an example, um, where you can I mean, Paul, if anyone's aware, you know, if, if anyone's the expert in the room, that's you. Um, that. you. You can get so detailed with automated processes and have such detailed tests for various campaigns and various messaging um, and generate all this wonderful data. But in an, in an earlier stage scale up, you, you can't start there. <laughs> you need to start a little bit more basic and know which, which direction to build in. Um, but if anyone's looking to go into that sort of market segment, I mean, I'd highly recommend it. Really, given the opportunity, one can really thrive. I completely agree. I think it is challenging, but I think you learn a lot, as you said, right? Like the, the, those challenges are also opportunities and they're opportunities to make a mark, as I know you have throughout your career, but also to learn loads because there's, there's no place to learn to swim like the deep end. <laughs> that, yep, absolutely. Very true. Um, what about outside of work? What are you passionate about outside of work? Ah, always, always a tricky question for me. Um, so I'm a parent to two young kids. Um, and as a result, <laughs> because I am truly passionate about my profession, frankly, between that and two young kids, the only other thing I, I managed to squeeze into my schedule is um, fairly regular, admittedly, uh, hit classes. So high intensity interval training. Uh, which really works for me 
in a small group setting, I found that the, the way exercise or the way I stick to regular exercise is if I have someone in real life standing over me, um, let's just say encouraging me aggressively. <laughs> <laughs> I totally get it. I certainly, when I'm in a group, I, I quite like a hit class as well. And uh, there is something about that environment for making you try hard. Indeed. Indeed. You know, it, it pushes me to a point where I would never push myself in my living room. For me, obviously, different things work for different people, but, but that's where I found my groove. So, and outside of these things, you know, admittedly, if I'm going to be completely transparent, and that's my aim here, um, <laughs> not a lot else fits in. <laughs> you know, it's quite understandable. And uh, yeah, I don't even know where you find the time to do what you what you do, to be honest. So uh, well done for squeezing that other stuff in. Um, let's talk science for a bit. Because you're one of my uh, one of my science background guests, um, I'd just love to know about an interesting scientific area you've worked in, or a particular product that, that was exciting for you from a science perspective. Tell us a bit more about yeah what you've loved about the scientific aspects of what you've done. Absolutely, and I think that's a big part of why I, I truly love the career that I have um, is that I've been very privileged, and I've. I've worked on some really interesting um, technologies, all of which have been really different, like in, in some really different areas. So that's ranging from um, single cell analysis instrumentation based on microfluidic technology through to in pharmaceuticals. I worked for um, treatment options for opioid dependence, to give an example, um, smaller laboratory reagents. But where my current passion lies is, you know, a bit of a cliche, but it's it's true, is is actually uh, something that we're working on at the moment. Um, so I, I knew very little about this before I joined my current organization. Um, but a, a big part of what I do now is in the field of digital pathology and AI. So um, I know, Paul, AI is, is an area that's very close to your heart as well. Um, and we're at this this like cusp of of an absolute explosion of AI in, in most industries. Um, so, I mean, to keep it fairly brief, because you can get pretty detailed, uh, but we're, what we're working on is effectively helping healthcare bodies. And that, that can be, I mean, in a lot of examples is um, the NHS, so NHS hospitals and trusts, uh, but also private healthcare organizations. We're helping them move their pathology models. So a lot of their cellular diagnostic processes, um, help them go fully digital. So moving away from uh, using glass microscope slides, which have been done for years and years and years, but effectively getting the samples scanned by um, ultra high resolution scanners so that those can be shared with anyone in the world for things like second opinions or um, something called multidisciplinary team meetings. So when you get different um, different healthcare professionals uh, working on a specific patient case to come together and decide on like optimal treatment patients, uh, treatment options for a person, apologize. Um, and there's also an element of AI, which is not quite in its infancy, but you know what we're, we're, I'd say at the beginning um, or or the AI is there, we're, we're at the beginning of, implementing it into everyday life for diagnostic purposes, let's put it that way, um, where AI can really help speed up diagnostic processes. So, I mean, ultimately what this means at the end of the day is that patients get answers much faster than they normally would, which obviously 
realistically should lead to much faster access to treatment. Um, so just with the, with the real world impact that that sort of technology can have and where we are now and its potential, um, it's just a really exciting space to be in. That sounds awesome. I mean, the AI nerd in me has to ask one more question um, about that. Where, What impact or what roles is the AI aspect going to play in that? Ah, so there are, are several several potential areas, actually. Um, a classic example, um, which which I like to start with when, when talking about this, because I think it's one that's very illustrative, is effectively using AI for triaging cases. So, you know, as, as a pathologist or a consultant, when you have X number of samples coming from X number of patients in front of you, normally you would start in, in like chronological order or, you know, it's it's not so easy to see where, where you should necessarily start or how to prioritize those other than when you suspect um, higher urgency cases. But what the AI can do is extremely quickly, basically look at all of them, like near, not quite simultaneously, but nearly. And at the very least, it can say, hey, you know, dear doctor, please start here. I think these are the samples that you really need to look at and diagnose because these people need attention now. Whereas these cases are probably completely benign, you know, don't worry about it, do those at the end of the day. So that's like a really good example where the AI isn't necessarily doing the formal diagnosis itself, but it's really helping streamline that process and, and helping patients out again at the end of the day. Um, but moving forward, so this is not just to be absolutely clear, at this, this point in time in the UK, an AI cannot make a diagnosis alone. Uh, I mean, as in from a regulatory perspective mm -hmm. um it will try <laughs> uh but it's, it's not a method that's widely adopted um but what we can do is is use the ai as like a first port of call again where it can you know make a recommendation for then an actual human pathologist to to verify or comment on um and i mean there there are a few other use cases um for the AI, but all of which ultimately leads to speeding up the processes and helping out humans, especially in cases where the NHS workforce is under such pressure. There aren't necessarily enough pathologists. In fact, there has been a dwindling pathology uh, workforce for many years now. Um, so that's, you know, as, as in many industries, the AI can step in to help the human aspect out. Fantastic. That sounds so exciting. I'll, um, I'll be watching that area now, I think, to see how those things emerge over time. But it sounds like they're already doing some interesting heavy lifting in terms of triaging and prioritizing, which I didn't know and is fascinating. Indeed. Okay, let's talk let's talk marketing for a bit now. I mean, obviously this is one of your passion areas. Um, and we've we've talked in the past about inbound marketing and other things that we've been excited about together over the years. But we've been speaking recently about the power of behavioral science and how understanding that can, you know, really influence how you market. Perhaps you could tell us a bit more about why you're so passionate about this area. You know, what is, what is it and why are you so excited about it? Absolutely. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's an area I find truly fascinating. So behavioral science and applying that to everyday marketing, um, and, and absolutely life science marketing as well. Um, so I suppose, looking at it from a very high level what it is 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 understanding that as much as people consumers 
think they make their everyday choices, you know, very logically, whether to buy a new shampoo or, um, in our case, in the life sciences, you know, whether to outsource a project or buy a certain reagent. Um, I think it's safe to say that those processes are often driven by uh, subconscious biases, cognitive biases that we may even be aware of, but like the placebo effect, even if it's, if you know it's there, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to, you know, overcome it um, or, or change your behavior. So it's, it's a whole field of study that's absolutely um, fascinating. And there's a whole host of books and really inspirational thought leaders in the field that, you know, I'd be more than happy to recommend it at any point. Um, but it all boils down to something that um, I kind of wish someone would have said to me when I was starting out in my career, which is that um, you really can stand on the, the shoulders of giants. And, you know, you don't have to figure everything out from scratch yourself. So of course, these won't be hard and fast rules. You know, there's no way to game human psychology, at least not in this day and age, thankfully. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but there are so many interesting studies and hints and tips um, that people before us have gone out and tested and road tested, particularly in, in their own marketing campaigns and have reported back on those results where I'm not at all saying to go out and, you know, like replicate their work necessarily. But what I'm saying is there are all those resources that you can look at and see how it would apply to your particular um, area of work. So for me in, in the life sciences, uh, one of the more challenging aspects is that for a lot of people, you know, a lot of marketers working in, in, in life science, they'll be working on like completely novel technologies, whatever they may be, whether it's lab instrumentation, whether it's a new assay, whether it's, I don't know, some kind of diagnostic process, whatever that may be, chances are the reason they're working for this, you know, cutting edge life science company is because this is the first time anyone's put this sort of approach um, out in the field. Um they're going to be generating new data around it, you know, generating proof of concept projects. So I think it's safe to say that these are completely new paths that they're taking. Um, so one of the key challenges there is that conveying the, or figuring out what the right message is and how to convey it and to what kind of audience and, you know, through what channel and what time. This is like all classic marketing, but it's it's particularly challenging when it's this niche and what you're conveying is quite complex. So what I like to do is, is go out and see uh, what people have already tested, what works better in most cases, um, and apply it to my everyday work um, and test it really. Just test it, test it, test it, you know, run a campaign, see what, see what works. Don't aim for absolute perfection right off the bat because there's no such thing and it'll never happen. And I've seen people get tangled up in these spirals, you know, trying to achieve some sort of perfect project before they launch. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, th those would be my words of encouragement. Go out there and see what people have already done. Fascinating. Oh, where to start to unpick that? <laughs> Let's, um, can you give me an example of how you've used something that you know or learned about from behavioral science and it impacted a marketing project you were running? Absolutely. 
So maybe to give, because I realized that I talked about some really high level concepts there. Um, so maybe to give a, a grounding example, you know, you can, it doesn't have to be uh, like a really big complex you lay or you add to your everyday work, but um, a concrete example would be say applying it to digital marketing, right? And you want to run some ads, say these are PPC ads. Um, and you're trying to come up with content for those and how you're going to work your keywords in there, but also make it appealing and encourage people to click on your ad, right? So um, your everyday basic digital marketing. Um, now, what you can do is, uh, again, see what others have tried and what that's done to their ads. So to give an example is... Um, using a statement versus using a, a question and getting getting your end user to try and engage or with your ad or, or or put themselves into their shoes and see how you know how this is actually going to impact them. Um, so using using a question in your ads like um, oh I'm, I'm now trying to think of how, how to apply it to a, to a specific technological innovation. <laughs> but let, let's pick on I don't know antibody discovery, right? right. <laughs> fields. So um, you might ask whether, uh, or no, sorry, you might make a statement of, you know, um, antibody discovery is a very long-winded process. Click here for a new solution. Right. That's 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 quite a, you know, not very original, if I dare say, boring ad where, yeah, I'm sure you'll get some clicks, but you're not really giving anyone like a real reason to click. Right. Versus, you know, uncover what that actual pain point is like say it's a very long-winded process for example so you could rephrase that to say antibody discovery taking 10 weeks or more question mark you know click here to find out how how to get it done in six weeks i'm completely making these examples up of course <laughs> but that's why you're a ninja because basically for our listeners you just put to you just optimized an imaginary campaign in an area that you don't work in real time so uh, i'm impressed and i appreciate Indeed. that <laughs> <laughs> so i apologize if, if that made absolutely no sense but... no it was brilliant it was brilliant <laughs> i wish i could do it in real time like that and it um do you know what it reminds me of? I read a book once called Influence by uh, Robert Cialdini. You know that book? Yes. Yes, a brilliant one. I love that book. And in it, there's a story you might remember about, um, it's an experiment where people are taking a test in a room. There's like 20 people. And then the experimenters start pumping smoke underneath the door. Now, there's actually one test subject in that room and the 19 others are stooges, right? And they all ignore the smoke as it comes in. And the person, more often than not, the person who's the actual test subject doesn't panic, doesn't try and leave, doesn't raise the alarm because they see that everyone else is completely calm around this, what is to all intents and purposes, a fire in the building. And they don't get up and they don't do anything. And I've always taken that story with me in terms of social proof. And how powerful it is. And of course, in marketing, if we're doing something like conversion rate optimization or website optimization, testimonials, quotes, case studies, reviews, these are all examples of social proof that trigger the same thing. When we see a third party acting a certain way, it gives it validity, right? And it makes us think, oh, it's safe for us to do it. So yeah, I love this topic as well. And it's just translate. Sometimes it's hard to translate those 
learnings into applicable marketing strategies. Do you know what I mean? Indeed. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a, that's a whole fresh challenge, of course. <laughs> yeah. But, but that's where I would say, you know how sometimes people say, if you're going to fail, fail fast. Right. So I'm going to add a little verbal asterisk to that and say, you know, within reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Without making, taking some immense risks to the entire organization, of course. Yeah. But within reason, this is where I'm saying, you know, don't aim for perfection. This is where I would say, um, because there are so many layers to consider, you know, and, and how to actually translate this into your own strategies. I'd say, you know, pick a couple and test them. It's it's not, we know it takes a little bit of um, fiddling around for for lack of a better, you know, description with, with, with your campaigns to put a couple of A-B tests in place, but just test it out. It doesn't have to take a lot of budget and, and see what sort of results you're getting and then tweak it and then tweak it again. And, you know, eventually you'll really start to get that data through where you can, you can see those learnings and applying them to further work to see what works for your particular area, your particular audience. Are there any particular tests that you've run in the past that stick out to you in terms of ones that learned you, where you learned something surprising or new? Yeah, to be honest, a, a very fresh example for a, uh, a proteomics masterclass we ran very recently, actually. Um, that was a really interesting one for me because it was um, essentially because proteomics is, again, you know, unsurprisingly in, in our area, a, a relatively new field where people want to carry out proteomics studies, but don't necessarily know a lot yet about experimental experimental design and how they can apply it to their area. Um so we we brought some thought leaders together and wanted to run an in-person masterclass on the subject matter. You know, fine. We placed it in Cambridge, knowing that again it's a it's a big hot um, hot spot uh, for the area and in terms of uh, the accum accumulation of researchers. Um, and then, um, despite our best efforts, you know, we had difficulties with the sign-up rate. So we weren't getting as many signups as we would have liked for a variety of reasons. In fact, actually, the challenge was we were getting a lot of visibility for the master class, which we were able to track, but the conversion rate into actual signups on the day wasn't great. So what we did is we postponed it. We took a step back and we went, you know what? It's We live in a post-COVID world. We're making it hybrid. Right. So, you know, give people the option. They still get access to, you know, the, the best part, which is the educational content. Um, now, I'm not going to go into, you know, there are various benefits of attending hybrid versus in person, of course, um, but just let people choose. We re-ran re that um, campaign for, for getting people to sign up for the masterclass. Way better results in terms of signups, you know, very happy with the results. But guess what? We got far more in-person signups than online registrations. And that in terms of a surprising result, I can't explain that really. That's still one I'm I'm mulling over um, and digging into because, you know, reasonably you would think that if people didn't want the the time commitment or they weren't able to access the geographical location, et cetera, you we should have seen a far higher rate of signups for hybrid. But indeed no, it was the opposite effect. Wow. Did you, I mean, it's very hard to run. The, one of the challenges with marketing experiments is it's not like a scientific experiment where you can keep all the other variables the exactly. same except one, right? In real life, maybe it was the date being on a different date made it better. Or, But, but I'm guessing to, 
from what you could see, at least, there was no other major variable change that suddenly triggered a deluge of interest. It was really this giving people the option that then somehow drove that much more interest and then got more commitment. That's that's right. And you know what? I agree with you. Uh, you know, there's there's no way we can just test the one variable. So it could have been down to something else, you know, in, entirely. Um, to our knowledge, everything else was the same. So we we um both sponsor and run our own events very regularly, you know. So we're we're used to avoiding things like half term and major holidays and other major industry conferences that we're aware of. Um etc for for all of those reasons um but yeah to to my to my knowledge and understanding you know there was no, there were no other major differences but there is something about giving people that flexibility and that choice like putting the power back in their hands mm -hmm. to see what's going to work best for them that seems to generally um drive better conversions that is such a good story and such a good example and I love the fact that not only did you have a better success rate overall, you got more people in person yeah. when you gave the option to not have to be in person, which is kind of mind blowing, but also intuitively thinking about how humans work in a weird way. It almost doesn't surprise me, but only in hindsight, right? Yes. Yes, absolutely. No, I, I, I see your point. I mean, as a result, you know, we've got some good experience now with running hybrid events, which again is, is, is. I think a lot of people would agree is is the way forward, right? So we we all learned how much you can do online in in COVID, but at the same time, um, there is there is another layer, especially for things like um, educational, uh, whatever get-togethers or or workshops or user groups. There there is like another dimension you get when you're able to do it face to face and really discuss with people in the room um that i think people do appreciate actually yeah i agree it's taken us all a little while to perhaps get comfortable getting in person again but i do i do think there's lots of benefits there well that that's a really great project that sounds awesome and hopefully it doesn't trump my next question too much um because what i was going to ask you is what's been the your favorite campaign or strategy or tactic that you've ever implemented and why ah yes so, you know, recently, actually, um, one campaign that has been pretty new to me is, is looking at geographical um, expansions. So taking a service that we're already, so this is my current organization, by the way, um, and taking a service that we're well known for, has been established for actually nearly like 20 years, um, and expanding it into new geographical territories has been really interesting because there's always an element of, you know, you know why, or at least you like to think, you know, why you've been successful and what's really worked and why, why this has been such a popular product for your, um, your audience, but then tweaking it to make sure it works for different geographies. Um, so a recent example is, is one of us expanding our singer sequencing, um, to the North of the UK. And you might think there isn't a big, um, difference between, you know, the service down South and, and further up North around like Manchester and Leeds and Liverpool. Um, but actually there is still, you know, it, there are still, um, different messages that you really need to tweak that are quite subtle for the audience, which, which I really like, like really getting into the subtleties of, 
um, why that's actually good for them. Nothing, nothing's changing for them except for, um, basically direct benefits, which is why we've done this, why the organization's invested in expanding out that way. Um, but to give maybe a more extreme example of that, um, in my previous organization, I worked across different countries as well. Um, so a global, you know, global company. And there we had a product that was launched uh, globally, but sequentially, right? So, so starting out in different countries and then as we got regulatory approval, expanding out across different territories. And despite it being the same product at the end of the day, same clinical trials, you know, same clinical benefits, um, the way you present it in those different countries and geographies, like there is a whole art to localizing um, your campaign, actually, depending on what people will respond better to. Not to, not to even mention obvious things like translating it into different languages, um, but really digging into uh, things like how the product might be, in the, in, in the case of a pharmaceutical, how it might be reimbursed, how it might be perceived, how big the market is, where your end users are likely to, to come across the product. You know, it's um, it's a fascinating one. And I, I'd have to say that's another real um, area of interest for me is, is localizing campaigns depending on local market needs. Yeah, I think that's a great example. You know, here at Biostrata, we work with companies especially North American companies trying to bring products and services to Europe. And I love your example of how even in the UK, you can have to adjust your messaging right within the same country, but also Spain, France, Denmark, Switzerland, Italy, Greece, Absolutely. very different markets, probably different um, approaches to buying. Like there's lots of different things you need to understand. And I think, You've raised a really good point there for companies trying to sell products and services globally or, you know, perhaps in like the example I gave coming from North America to Europe, having an appreciation of that complexity and how to leverage it to your benefit. Because if you put the extra effort in, you can often get better results, but you've got to balance that out versus, you know, trying a one size fits all approach because maybe you won't improve results enough to justify a lot of extra effort and translations and stuff. But in a lot of cases you will. So I'm glad you raised that because I don't think it comes up that often. And I think it is a bit of a, an important thing to keep in mind. Um, outside of that, because you've been doing this a while now, what would you, your single biggest marketing tip be that you'd pass on to other marketers, perhaps marketers uh, starting out in their career? Absolutely. Um, so I think my biggest bit of advice would be, you know, little bit cliche, but it's so true to never stop learning, especially in life science marketing, where this field is, it's moving so quickly, you know, that, that just a few months, never mind like a year can make such a difference. So as technologies move, fo move forward, competition stiffens, um, not to mention marketing tools themselves, um, you know, especially when it comes to, to digital marketing um, progress continuously, really. Um, and that's without even mentioning things like chat GPT and, and again, you know, various other kinds of AI that are coming into play, AI plugins for CRMs. Um, so, you know, really, really keeping your eye on the ball um, 
And just remembering that it doesn't have to be structured learning. You know, you don't have to go out there and get a new degree to to progress your career and and to be really successful in your field. The the wealth of and this is going to seem like Paul is paying me to say this, but I promise you, <laughs> not. <laughs> uh, it, it's it's things like like um, podcasts and webinars um, and industry people talking about their experiences with that sort of thing in mind, even just networking and talking to people who have been through it all. Um, there is so much educational information that you can access almost instantaneously in this day and age. Um, there, there's really no reason not to. It's, it's just a, a matter of starting. Um, and then sometimes actually I find because of the the wealth of information out there, it's more of a challenge to have a look through it and pick out the bits that are actually going to be most useful. Otherwise you could spend all day <laughs> reading white papers. Um, not that that's a bad thing. I would, I would actually really, really enjoy that, but <laughs> I appreciate sometimes some work needs to get done. Get done. So, um, yeah, it's it's truly I I wish that there were more podcasts such as this one when I was starting out. Uh there still aren't very many, so I'm really appreciative of what you're doing here, Paul. Um I think it's worth its weight in gold for people looking to to further their career, um enhance their skills. And um and that would be my top tip, you know, pick your medium of choice that really works for you if it's podcasts or on your commute, if it's a book in the evenings, you know, whatever. Um, there are so many useful bits of material out there that, that one can leverage to their advantage. I love that. I think having that curious learning mindset is a secret weapon because the information's there, as you said, and it's multimodal. Like you said, right? If you like to listen, listen. If you like to watch, watch. If you like to read, read. It's a, Content and information's everywhere um, and just get it in your flavor. I, I love that. Um, I know this conversation will be worth its weight in gold to our listeners, and I really appreciate you coming on. Um, so thanks again, Claudina. If people wanted to get in touch with you after listening to this podcast, if they had some questions or they just wanted to connect with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Oh, brilliant. I mean, I just, I absolutely love connecting with like-minded individuals. So, you know, I always encourage people, I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Twitter, both just under Claudina Johnstone. Um, so and there are many people with my name out there, so not particularly difficult to find. <laughs> uh, but they can also reach out uh, to me at hello at johnstone.bio. Um, and I, you know, I'll, I'll pick up any email there and would be keen to to further any conversations. So thank you. Fantastic stuff. Well, thanks again for joining me and I look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you so much, Paul. It's been an absolute pleasure. Great. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Life Science and Marketing Podcast. For your regular dose of cutting-edge life science marketing insights, don't forget to subscribe. Join us again in two weeks for another engaging expert discussion.